When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Get ready, Ohio. FanDuel, America's number one sports book, is coming to the Buckeye State. And to kick things off, you can get started with $100 in free bets as an early sign-up bonus. Plus, when you sign up today with promo code OHIOFD, you'll be all set when FanDuel goes live in Ohio. Then you can bet on all your favorite teams in all your favorite sports with $100 in free bets. Just download FanDuel's top-rated sportsbook app. It's safe, secure, and super easy to use. Ohio, this is your chance to get in on the action. Join today with promo code OHIOFD. Make every moment more with FanDuel, official sportsbook partner of the NFL. 21 or older and present in Ohio. Bonus issued in non-withdrawable free bets that expire seven days after FanDuel accepts its first real money sports wager in Ohio. one Unique user identity verification required. Offer ends on the go-live date. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. At Lowe's, we're your go-to for great gardening values every day. That's why we've lowered our price on select bagged mulch, now starting at just $2.88 a bag. Mulch helps prevent weeds and retains moisture. And when you put it down around trees, shrubs, and flower beds, you'll see how beautiful it makes your outdoor space. Just in time to welcome back family and friends. Shop online and pick up in-store. Lowe's, home to the best part of summer. Selection and product availability vary by location. While supplies last, U.S. only. Excludes Alaska and Hawaii. Film study with Ken McCusick. Today, we're going to look at the defense roster as a whole, look back the year, and do the uh, five evaluations and break it out. Ken McCusick, how you doing? Life's good, Josh. How about you? I'm doing well. Uh, this will be a fun show because instead of me, I'm going to take a little bit of a step back in this show, and we're going to welcome Michael Crawford to the show. Michael, how you doing? Hey, I'm doing great, Josh. How about yourself? Uh, I'm doing well. Uh, you'll see Michael's writings over on Russell Street Report, just like Ken. His stuff is under the heading Game Changers. And you can also follow Michael on Twitter, Abu Kari. And uh, how, do you, how do you spell that? That is uh, A-B-U-K-A-R-I. Uh, that, that's why I wrote it out in a different way so that I would <laughs> pronounce it right, Abu Kari. <laughs> Michael's a terrific follow on Twitter. Lots of gifts. Uh, he's at some point he's going to teach me enough times that critical mass will grow, and I'll be able to do my own gifts at some point. Uh, yeah, that's that's a step beyond me. That whole converting, I I just use the little gift search, and that's where I that's where I end with gifts. 
Um, all right, guys. So I'm going to hand it over to you guys to get through these categories. Uh, Ken, before we you guys dig in, why don't you set up the five categories since it's been a while since we've done this? Sure. So uh, we'll we'll talk about this. And of course, Michael, I know you're familiar with this, but we have we have five categories that I like to split each of the defensive and offensive rosters into. The young producer category, which are people on their first players on the first contract who are a win versus the salary cap is the way to look at them. They're they're players who are producing on their first contract. The developmental category also first contract players, but they haven't quite made it to to a starting status or they're not quite playing well enough or there's something not quite there with their game that keeps them still a, a, a shade short of that top spot. Then you have veterans playing for market value. Those are the, the players who make up the bulk of your salary cap expense. Uh, they are been around a while, and there are a lot of them are the cornerstone contracts of your organization. When they go south, when you don't spend that money well, it, it really shows up, and uh, and things are not as good. The next category, though, is the real trouble one, the veteran cap value concerns, and that's where you drop when you're not playing well and more market value. You're a cap value concern. They pay you too much, and then there's a question about whether or not uh, you know you can be kept or not. And then a transitional category, which are players who don't really figure to be around for too much longer. And oftentimes there's a player who escapes this category and, and moves up somehow, but uh, oftentimes these guys are completely gone. And for example... That's, that's your cut list. That's right. That's your cut list. Yeah, my likely cut list. There's a lot of talent, by the way, on the tra transitional category on the defense we're going to get to. But for one reason or another, I think a lot of them are going to be gone. So uh, uh, anyway, we'll talk through that. So anyway, uh, Michael, I want to welcome you again to the show, and and uh, you know we're going to be going through this hand in hand and and uh, talking through it. Slow us down with questions uh, by all means. Any kind of discussion we want to have, uh, I want it to be open. And uh, I guess let's just get right to it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I've been a big fan of this series uh, uh, since you've been doing it. Something I always check out, and so it's kind of cool to actually get. Uh, to be a part of it now. So yeah, you're right. Let's uh, let's jump into these young producers. All right. Well, we're thrilled to have you, man. Okay. Well, let's see. the young producer list is a fairly obvious one. Marlon Humphrey in his second year, Matthew Judon in his third, Patrick Owasso just finished his third year. Also, Michael Pierce and Tavon Young also both finished their third years. All, all players on their first contract. Uh, those five guys, awfully important to the team. And uh, we have a couple guys in, in there who are going to be unrestricted free agents after 2019, three of them, in fact. Ah, make that four. Matthew Judon, uh, Owasso, Pierce, and Young will all be free agents after 2019. So one of the things, that, just a couple things step out about this group. One is that the Ravens are probably in a situation where it'd be wise to try and sign one of those guys long term if they can identify the guy who wants to play at a less than full market value price, but get his contract taken care of a year early. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's something that uh, I've thought about uh, recently with some other players and kind of in the recent past about them having an opportunity to sort of lock guys up early, especially when you see guys sort of really performing well early, obviously Marlon Humphrey right at the top of this list just came off a season where he won uh, the team's MVP, mm -hmm. uh, really played well uh, uh, throughout this season. So uh, when I was looking at this list, I was thinking about that question. I'm like, man, who, who, who would I take that approach with? And it's hard to pick individual guys, but one thing that's kind of becoming more of a, a, a thought process for me is guys who can affect the passer, either in coverage or in pass rush, right? These are the guys that you want to have 
on your team, right? Especially if they do that at a high level. So, I mean, I guess that puts us right in the, the crosshairs of guys like Humphrey, uh, Judon. I mean, obviously you can throw Tavon in there because I think the nickel is a really important position uh, in, in today's NFL. Yeah, absolutely. So, so Michael Pierce would be the odd man out, or maybe Owasso. Honestly, I don't believe is going to get a cornerstone contract. Not the type we think of, you know, in in uh, in those terms. He's a tremendous platoon player, and frankly, with the amount of rotation the Ravens have done, the surprising thing about this group is nobody's played that many snaps. Now, Marlon Humphrey won the team MVP as a cornerback, which is, first of all, is very rare that your team MVP is a corner, and he won it playing 68.7 percent of the defensive snaps this year, which is to my thinking, remarkable. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to imagine somebody, uh, number one, like you said, a, a corner, uh, just because of sort of the, the position, and then only playing that, only, I mean, it's, it's still, you know, more than half the snaps, but you're thinking about a guy who's played, you know, maybe 90-plus percent of the snaps or close to 100 percent of the snaps, and if it's on defense, you're thinking about maybe a linebacker or a safety mm -hmm. or a pass rusher. So, I mean, it just really speaks to, their secondary and their cornerback group in particular. I mean, I think that was definitely one of the strengths, if not the strength uh, of the defense this year, the depth and just the quality of guys at that position uh, was, was, and I know that's, that's something we'll probably get into a little bit later when we get into guys like Jimmy Smith and that kind of thing. But just the, the, the quality and the depth that they had this year is just something they haven't had for a while. Yeah, they, you had, they had it and they had six healthy guys in December, which is unheard of. They were rotating at, four guys at three positions just because they had four guys. I can't otherwise come up with a good reason why you have to rotate them all, but they're all playing too well to be completely sat down. So Carr and Tavon and Jimmy Smith and who am I forgetting now? Uh, Humphrey. Yeah, <laughs> that was important. Marlon Humphrey. Uh, yeah. Are all, are all uh, alternating snaps there. And, you know, it's just, it's that kind of depth is remarkable in December. Every other team scraping for cornerbacks and we'll get to how, some other teams' rosters may be affected by the Ravens' availability of talent there a little later. But go back to the snap percentage for a minute. Humphrey at 68.7% actually had the most of this young producer group. So Pierce only played 37.4% of the, the snaps. He had, it seemed like he had a much larger impact on the game than that because he's injured a couple games. He probably played about 45 to 50% of the snaps in the games he actually played, although they were very careful to rotate the defensive line this year. But the other thing about uh, about Pierce is that, to your point earlier about affecting the passer, he really came on as a pass rusher and ended up being one of the primary interior pairings for uh, Zadarius Smith this year. So I thought that was, uh, you know, a big step forward for him and and a reason why I think he's in the he's in the picture for a a uh, cornerstone contract here. Yeah, he's definitely one of those guys who. You know, obviously just by nature of his position, right, a defensive tackle, big guy like him who's going to play over the center a lot of times, his 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 plays don't always jump, or, or at least players at that position, their plays don't always jump out. But there's something about him that I think if you're a Ravens fan, you can think of at least a couple of plays, right, whether it's a fourth down stop uh, that Michael Pierce made in a game. And so, you know, just because of the nature of what those guys are asked to do, sometimes the numbers don't pop off the page at you, but you have to think about the sort of larger impact or sort of domino impact that they have, right? Like you said, generating that interior push. Uh, obviously, all quarterbacks hate that, right? I mean, mm -hmm. if you've got to deal with pressure, you'd rather have it coming off your edge than right in your face. 
because uh, at least you have an opportunity to go opposite of it if it's coming off the edge. If it's in your face, you got nowhere but to bail out of the back of the pocket, and you don't want to do that. And then also, uh, I think what doesn't get captured with guys like him is just how much they free up other people in the run game, right? Oh, if he's absolutely. Yeah, if he's preventing an offensive lineman from climbing to level two to either get a linebacker or a safety, then he's done his job, right? You, it might not show up as a tackle that he made or anything like that, but he's making – uh, the play. He might not make the tackle, but he's making the play. And that's eating the double team. And honestly, Pierce, it seemed like once per game this year, he was able to actually not just eat, but beat the double team. And, you that's know, it. occupying those two blockers, like you just mentioned, and preventing that guy from climbing to level two can be a big deal. Uh, but but you, the Ravens run game, if you just look at how that worked down the stretch, they froze those outside defenders. They went two and one on the inside on both defensive tackles a lot. And oftentimes allowed either Yanda to, to peel off into level two after he teed up his guy or uh, or uh, Skura to do the same. Uh, but it was it was very well orchestrated double teams on the inside that drove a lot of that power run game. And, you know, just Pierce's ability to stop that. I think it's part of why we so see so many shotgun snaps against the Ravens and not from mobile quarterbacks either. You know, Ben Roethlisberger on fourth and one is in the shotgun against the Ravens most of the time. So. Uh, anyway, he's he's definitely one of the Ravens' very, very big assets on defense. Yeah, and I don't want to give any short shrift to Matt Judon either because I think he had a good year, especially the second half of the year. I think he really started to play more consistently. I mean, I think the thing with him, you've always seen the flashes, right? There's mm-hmm. been no question that this guy, you know, he can he can rush the passer and can do some other things um, in, in terms of every now and then. He's clearly not at Suggs' level. I, I'm not going to compare him to that in terms of playing in the pass game and breaking up screen passes and stuff like mm-hmm. that. But you're seeing some glimpses of maybe he's picking some of that kind of stuff up uh, from Suggs or just, you know, gaining more experience. So for him, I think it's it's like most young players. It's it's about consistency, you know, and, and as he continues to develop that, and I think we saw that in the second half, cutting down on some of those bonehead penalties, you know, that's something that's kind of plagued him a little bit earlier in his career. But right. he's definitely got the ability uh, to sort of step into that role. Now, nobody's ever going to be Suggs. So, I mean, I think if, if that's what you're comparing him to, you're, you're being unfair right off the bat. Well, they, need, uh, but, they need to find the run defender who can match some of what Suggs is because they don't have him right now. They, they, that and, and the back-end safety are kind of the two real missing components to the other complementary players. Yeah, yeah, agreed, agreed. He, he, Judon and Zadarius Smith, I think, it, it's my opinion, made some strides defending mm-hmm. the run this year. But, yeah, they're not – I mean, Suggs is probably even, – even at his age – I definitely put him at the top of the league in terms of run defenders at the outside linebacker yeah. position. No question. Yeah. yeah. All right. I'll tell you what, let's move on to the developmental category, a fairly crowded category. And this is one we tend to spend a little bit of time on and go through player by player. Uh, 11 guys on the list. I'll just call them out to start with Anthony Averett, Chris board moved up there and he was, he was way down in the transitional category before Tyus Bowser, Maurice Kennedy, Chuck Clark, Deshaun Elliott, though he spent the entire year on IR, Willie Henry, similarly injured, Cyrus Jones, Zach Seiler, Zach Sealer, I should say, Tim Williams, Chris Wormley, and Kenny Young. Yeah, crowded list. Um, and I tried to just kind of jot a quick little note down about each guy. So, uh, like you said, let's just roll through them. I guess let's start with Averitt. Sure. Go, go ahead with your, your point on him. So, uh, Averitt is, is an interesting guy. Uh, talented guy. Came out of the University of Alabama. Um, you know, same program that Marlon Humphrey came out of. Um 
we didn't get to see a ton of him this year. Uh, you know, he wasn't on the field for a ton of defensive snaps. I think most of his snaps came in like two games. I think the KC mm-hmm. game, uh, he got a lot of run and then uh, got some run towards the end of the Buffalo game because it was a blowout. Um, but just looking at his profile, I mean, it, it's almost a carbon copy of Tavon Young. If you go back and you look at their mm-hmm. their their combine measurements, uh, Tavon's 5'9", Averett's 5'11". They're both 183 pounds. One guy ran a 4.46. One guy ran a 4.36. Their agility drills are pretty similar. So he profiles as a guy who could probably play nickel and also play outside because I think that's where mm-hmm. we saw him this year. Uh, so maybe he has uh, that flexibility. Tavon actually played outside his first year. Um, some Sometimes people forget about that. Oh. I don't know if that was always the plan. But uh, once <laughs> once they had some other injuries at cornerback, Tavon stepped out there. So uh, I'm actually really excited about him. I think there's some real potential there. Yeah, my mind, he's the most important of the developmental players, probably because the Ravens are spending a lot of money still at cornerback right now, and it's a potential place for savings. And yet, if they do too much to endanger the depth they have at the position, specifically with Carr and Jimmy Smith, then they could end up being shorthanded again very quickly. Uh, and, and, you know, it was tested. It's not like the Ravens' depth at corner wasn't tested this season. It just came back, and everybody happened to be healthy down the stretch drive. But they had injuries all year long. They, You know, they had Jimmy Smith missing for four games, and they had, uh, you know, other players missing. The only constant the entire year was was Brandon Carr. So, uh, so anyway, let's keep moving here. Uh, a Chris Board, terrific year on special teams with 12 combined tackles. Uh, really has still not played very much defense, only 12 snaps all year. I think he's going to get a chance to show what he can do as a middle linebacker, whether or not he can be a legitimate backup Mike or not handle some of those coverage responsibilities will be one of the interesting camp. Yeah. He, you, uh, you know, you talk about profiles again, he's another one of those guys that fits that prototypical start out on special teams, linebacker, maybe work your way into the starting lineup role that they've had over the last couple of years. I just looked at, uh, those numbers you mentioned and kind of went back and compared them go back to Zach Orr, right? His rookie year playing special teams, seven solos, 11 combined tackles. Then go back to peanut, his rookie year, eight solos, 10 combined tackles. They're all kind of around right around the same size, right around six foot. Um, the weights vary a little bit. Peanuts, probably the lightest guy of that mm-hmm. group. The other guys are like two thirty, you know, maybe a little bit more than that, but it's that profile, right? Of, of that guy who kind of works his way up. Uh, through that progression and then cracks the starting lineup usually in like year two or three. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Boards, Boards had an interesting thing because this year he was a designated goal line player. So he would came in for Owasso in those situations and was playing inside linebacker. So it's it's odd that a player gets that kind of an opportunity. It's happened a couple times before with the Ravens, but he's he's one of them. Jameel McClain got to gotta start doing that as well. Let's move yeah. on here. T- Tyus Bowser, uh, he, he ended up playing one more competitive snap this year than last year. I think a lot of people correctly would consider that a disappointment. He, he he probably did more on a snap-by-snap basis as a pass rusher this year, even though the sack total was not particularly impressive. Um, but the fact that Williams was out for an extended period, uh, you know, we're going to talk about that a little later, obviously. Uh, I would have expected more from Tyus Bowser, and I, I, I'm really kind of sad to say I don't think he's found his niche yet in terms of either being the coverage guy or the pass rusher or the run stopper or whatever he could be at outside linebacker for this team. Yeah, that's the question for me with him. What, Where does he fit, right? Because I think so far everything you just mentioned is what we've seen, sort of jack-of-all-trades, master of none. Uh, obviously, he's got some coverage ability. 
obviously he's got some pass rush ability. And to your point, I actually think he showed some things from a technique standpoint, uh, which you would hope, right, over from year Mm -hmm. one to year two, uh, that sort of made him uh, more effective as a pass rusher. Didn't always pay off uh, in terms of a sack or a QB hit or anything like that, but I think he definitely generated uh, some pressures with some of his opportunities, but you know, carving out that role of of where he fits, and he could be another one of those guy, another one of those guys. Not as extreme an example as as uh, Bernard per- uh, Brashad Perryman, who I know is a a show favorite uh, for you guys, particularly for yeah. Josh. But yeah. I think he's it's one of those guys who may have a little bit longer of a development curve than we would expect. You know, you're expecting, okay, if you're drafted in second round, we should see something by year two, definitely. He flashed some things as a rookie. You know, you remember the, the interception mm-hmm. against the Bengals and you had a couple Defensive of Defensive player pressure. of the week or rookie of the week, was it, in week two, whichever yeah. it was, yeah. Yeah, and so he could be another one of those guys who maybe it just takes a little bit longer. The talent is there, though. I don't think there's, there's any question that the talent is there, but can they afford to wait on him is always the question. Right. I mean, he's, he is one of those players that if, if Judon went down for four weeks – you probably wouldn't be scared to death that he was your Sam linebacker, your starting Sam linebacker. But you, it, you also wouldn't you'd, you'd be concerned about your depth at that point too. So Absolutely. anyway, I'm I, I'm I'm still hopeful that that he he's a player there. He's still got a couple of years left under cheap team control. So let's really hope. But uh, but he's in a better spot than Williams is about the only thing I can say right now for for how far along he is. I agree. I agree. What about uh Maurice Kennedy? Uh, he's He's a versatile guy, right? Love the fact that he can play some corner. Obviously played some nickel for them last year, can play safety, uh, mm-hmm. adds that depth again to the to the backfield. But the thing that worries me is been on IR each of his first three years right. of the season, you know, at various points. Now, that in and of itself looks like a negative, but I guess on the flip side, he's always come back. Uh, you know, he's, he's come back and, and been able to play. Uh, during during the season, so I guess you know there's there's six of one, half dozen of another. But I love the versatility, but uh, that that pattern does worry me a little bit. The most important ability is availability, right? But he's IRDTR both years, both these last two years, and in 2017 he really earned that designation with a terrific second half at slot corner. I mean, without him, the Ravens wouldn't have been in playoff contention down the stretch, and he he made the great play that won the Colts game at home in the second to last week. And then, of course, he was involved, we'll say, on the back end of the 4th and 12 play uh, in a position where, frankly, I don't think he should have been asked to play by P's. It was a, it was, if you're going to make your one call that's different from all the other calls you've made you know, during, during the year and you want to put him back in a complex back-end role where he's got to make choices, he's got to you know, feel for that guy on the outside, move back to the inside, get the proper depth, yada, yada— I mean, it was just a lot to ask when he'd been so successful with man coverage to that point. Yeah, I really do. I really dove into that play that year, like really trying to study it and understand sort of how they ended up on that call. And it just looked like one of those situations where you tried to be, you know, you tried to do a little too much with disguise, uh-huh. uh, you know, in that moment when maybe you just go with your bread and butter on that play and just just let your guys play. But anyway, you know, hi, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, but. Yeah. Uh, yeah, still still very excited about his potential and about his future and what what he brings to the team. I just I, I just sticking with that for a moment with what happened this year. And, you know, one of the great pleasures we've had these last few weeks of the season is Romo has been calling a lot of the games. And you know, I like him. He's very good, I think, as an there announcer. Is. But he constantly is mentioning the fact that the, the Ravens are not going to allow him to have time in the pocket. They're going to rush the whole farm and do it. <laughs> and, and I'm. 
I think that it's a it's a first of all it's a good starting defensive philosophy period, but it's a really good one for this team where there's not tremendous back end skills anymore, and you have the you have the a good chance to get in the face of that. They've only really got you know they got Levine who can close a window pretty effectively, but in terms of uh, I've always been less than impressed with Jefferson's back end skills and Weddle while he's had decent bracketing ability and had uh, you know good predatory ability to pick up some balls in in. The last, the previous two years, he lost that ability this year. Was not in the, he was not there with the football very often uh, in 2018. Had no picks. So uh, anyway, I, I would love to see them develop another free safety. I think that's where the, where the Ravens have one of their biggest needs. Kennedy, I think, will help the Ravens on the outside. I think he's going to be pushed up at least to the number five spot for this next year. It may even be the number four spot, depending on, on how they work with their roster. And maybe, you know, speaking of developing another free safety, obviously the way that they play their safeties, you have to be interchangeable. They don't really have sort of, you know, really defined roles for their safety. So maybe one of these next two guys, Clark or Deshaun Elliott, uh, you know, Clark certainly looks more like a strong safety type, but he's mm-hmm. played some on the back end at times. It's just the nature of, of what they ask their safeties to do. You know, they, even even under Wink, you know, we saw that last year with Pease and it looked like the second half of the year maybe he had Weddle play a little bit more on the back end instead of moving him around as much. Uh, But I think, you know, we saw that this year with Wink too. I just think that's a philosophy that, that both of those seem, both of those guys seem to share is that they want interchangeable sort of ability at safety. Yeah. I, I, I'm not in love with that as a, as a organizational direction. And I know some of it is maybe Weddle being the signal caller really wants to call his own number on the blitz sometimes or, or, or whatever, but obviously neither of them is having all that much success on the back end. Is basically telling you you want a lot of man coverage anyway, but and a lot of cover zero, cover one, you know, chance taking as, as it would as it would, uh, would be. Clark didn't look that great on the back end, honestly, either this this season. Uh, you know, he's an in the box safety, uh, a guy who's played some dime. He was used in the quarter package eight times this year as as a second inside linebacker type. They used him a lot at big nickel, where his responsibilities are a lot to, to handle a rush game. And, you know, oftentimes they're playing zone defense when they're in big nickel and, they're, and they will drop into something where he doesn't have a, a, you know, a real complex coverage. Or he, has, he, he primarily has to worry about the first guy into his zone as opposed to the second or third guy who might be clearing out. Uh, so anyway, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was going to say, I don't want to I don't want to reduce his his season down to two plays, but two kind of stick out for me. Uh, One positive, one not as positive. The Atlanta game kind of had to play deep against Julio once on one of those deep balls, did a good job uh, sort of getting in Julio's way to prevent him from getting downfield. So, um, you know, that was, you know, sort of an optimistic thing for me, because like you, I was a little concerned about his coverage on the back end. But then on the negative side, the Kansas City game, I guess he had a little bit of both in Kansas City because he had an interception, Mm -hmm. but he also gave up a TD uh, uh, down there in the in the corner, which I really think was on him. Uh, It was a a throw to Kelsey on like a corner route. And I think he just took a bad angle uh, to, to the ball. So a um, little bit of a mixed bag uh, back there, but again, another young player who's still uh, sort of learning the ropes of, of all the things that they ask their safeties to do. And they, they do ask their guys to do a lot back there. Right. Very, very well could end up being the replacement for Levine as if there's ever a replacement at, at dime. But uh I don't. I don't really know where his future is on the back end. Whether he'll ever replace Jefferson or or Weddle, we'll we'll have to see how that goes. We'll talk about the next guy a little bit. Is Deshaun Elliott, and I was probably more excited than anyone about him. And he's also, well, along with Averett, I think is one of the most important because we don't know who this guy is yet. He he looked pretty damn good in training camp 
at the free safety spot. So in those preseason games, he, he really looked good. Uh, they, the Ravens have an awful lot of dime, strong, strong safety hybrids, and they're short on back-end skills. We, you know, we've talked about that, obviously, so far. Elliott is the guy who there is not a uniform agreement on whether or not he's a free safety or strong safety, safety candidate coming out of school. Yeah, I actually lean more towards seeing him as a strong safety coming mm-hmm. out of Texas, but the getting a chance to see him at some of their practices in the preseason and then obviously seeing him in some of the games before he got hurt, he looks like the classic guy for them, the interchangeable guy that can play a little bit of both. Uh, I think what probably caught some people's attention with his last year in college is he had six INTs mm-hmm. uh, his last season in college. So obviously uh, that's going to get some some attention. And, you know, people kind of dug into that and said, well, a lot of those were on overthrows, right? Tips and overthrows. But that's part of playing safety is how you play <laughs> tips and that's overthrows. A, that's that's right? exactly <laughs> so, what the center field is. Yeah, so I mean, I don't think you can ding the guy. I mean, he made the plays that were there to make. There's a lot of guys who don't make those plays. I heard, so. I've heard two different conflicting types of scouting report. One is that said all the six interceptions were easy balls. He should have had every one. So what? And the other one was that he was in position to have many more, and he dropped them. Yeah. And you know, so you hear both of these things, by the way. And and I say good on both counts. You know, you obviously have you, you want to have as many at bats as possible on those tip balls and balls that are overthrows. And if you drop a few, well, Ed Reed dropped a few. That's the, that's the way it went. Ed Reed didn't have perfect hands with regard to that. He had, he had good hands. He made, he, he converted a fairly good percentage of his interceptions, but he dropped a few too, because he was always seeming to be in the right spot. So anyway, I'm excited about Elliot. I think if you want a real dark horse candidate for who might be calling the signals for the Ravens next year, Elliot would probably be my guy as the fourth most likely to be it okay and the three most likely they may not be on the team so we'll get to that a little later um willie henry in the final year of his rookie contract in 2019 uh he should have a significant interior pass rush role because after he effectively redshirted his entire first season uh his second season he was outstanding in that role and in his, in the limited amount of time that he played in this third season, uh, the Ravens had a very high sack percentage when he was in. Now, some people are going to say, well, of course, he played the Tennessee game. Well, I say, well, they had a lot of sacks in the Tennessee game, and Willie Henry was there. That's, you know, part of that was him, of course. So, yeah. uh, you know, he definitely is one of the significant critical mass pieces to making sure that they can do some of the things they can still do now with Zedarius Smith or without Zedarius Smith going forward. Yeah, I think from a, a, a sort of pure defensive lineman uh, sort of profile, he was their best interior rusher. Obviously, they moved Zedarius inside, and he's 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 really good in there too. But you know, obviously, he's he's an outside linebacker sort of hybrid type, but a guy who's you know, sort of purely uh, a defensive lineman, defensive tackle, sort of defensive end. I thought Henry uh, was was probably their best interior pass rusher when he was healthy. So he looks like one of those guys that if he can come back healthy next year, um, sort of what we've seen, right, has a great year in his last year as yeah. a Raven, maybe puts up some 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 really good numbers uh, relative to his position, and then, you know, you can't afford him at that point. But if you get the benefit of the performance for that year, then you'll take it, you know? Yeah, I, I mean, that's really all it comes down to. Nobody's going to complain if he has a 13-sack year or even a 9-sack year next year. They're going to be very excited about that. And if they lose him to free agency after that, that's just the way life works. But he, the injury this year, unfortunately, put him in a position where he can't really be considered, I don't think, for a cornerstone contract the way those other three guys in the young producer category yeah. can. Uh, you know, particularly when you have that much 
uh, all maturing at the same time, all going through that. It's that great 2016 draft they had, you know, was really all maturing at, at exactly the same time. So, uh, by the way, uh, Henry was in there for 52 pass plays, and the Ravens sacked the quarterback 11 times, 21.2% of his sacks. And that's by far the highest on the Ravens for anybody, well, for anybody, period, but for anybody who has 50 or more snaps. Doing something right when he's in there, that's for sure. And yeah. uh, that pass rush uh, is something that obviously is always important for every team. Uh, but for them, particularly with the way that their secondary, uh, primarily the corners, are constructed, it's I, 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 even this year, and the defense obviously was awesome this year, but I still felt like that's the one piece, right? If you really can get that guy, uh, they did it sort of in a, a, in a collaborative effort, and that's fine. But if yeah. you could really get that guy, who can line up and just whip a tackle one-on-one. And I thought our next guy, I thought Tim Williams had the, had the potential, uh, you know, with what we saw this offseason. He looked like he was primed for sort of a breakout role, but obviously he had a couple things that happened uh, kind of set him back this year. Yeah, so we, we talked about Williams, and let's go back and make sure we catch them all. But uh, uh, Williams not active after the bye. Uh, his, his play dropped uh, to 11.1% of snaps for the entire regular season. They still sacked the quarterback a lot when he was in there. Of course, they sacked the quarterback a little bit more in the first half of the season. But Williams himself was definitely a different type player this year than last in a lot of ways. Uh, he had you know, a variety of pass rush moves. So I don't know what he did in his offseason, but he looked like he was a changed man. The other thing about Williams in training camp, which makes the doghousing so bizarre, is that Williams was not only in great shape, but he, he was playing the run very well. And to, to, to then see him lose his spot and lose uh, Harbaugh's confidence, obviously, in terms of what's happened in the second half, I've heard various stories. I don't know. I don't really know what to believe. But, but you know, Jeff Sreebeck says some things. I believe he's at least being straightforward with how Harbaugh is recounting this to him. But apparently he may have not stayed in the best shape while he was out. And then also he lost some of his preparedness, which is going to make Harbaugh testy whenever that happens. So I, I, I can understand why, I guess, but I, the outside linebacker position was heavily taxed down the stretch. It was one of the positions where everybody was rested. Otherwise, on the defense, it would have been really great to have Tim Williams back. There better have been a damn good reason why he wasn't available to play in those games. Yeah, of their, of their young guys at that, in that position, I think he's got – uh, sort of the classic pass rush, uh, pass rush pedigree, right? Mm -hmm. He's a guy that looks like he can just burn the edge and just get around a tackle and dip under him or rip under him and get to the quarterback. The other guys have those moves too at times, but I think he's probably the most naturally explosive of the yeah. group that they have. So if he can put it all together, and he's going into year three, so I mean, I don't, I don't want to make it sound like it's, it's not possible. Obviously, he's still very young, but if he can put it all together off the field and in the meeting rooms and at practice, what we saw in the preseason, granted it's preseason, so you know, take that for what it's worth. But I think that's a glimpse of maybe what he could be. Yeah. So I I, I do believe he's gonna get a fresh chance coming into this preseason, but this isn't this would not be the time to show up for camp overweight. It would not be the time to show up for camp and have forgotten a lot of fundamentals. You know, the other thing that, that the other guy who was really uh, hyping him during training camp and even during the mini camps before then uh, was Rosberg. Rosberg was really happy with his special teams play. And there's an opportunity there because Bowser, although, he, I, you know, by all evidence, he tries very hard, has made a lot of boneheaded special teams plays, including not being on the field at times. So uh, it's one of these things where Tim Williams, the opportunity is there, man. You, you've got to come back and 
be ready. <laughs> yeah, you got to seize it. You got to seize it. I mean, everything is there for him. And like you said, it seems like the coaches believe in him. The coaches think he's right there, like right on the cusp of really taking hold of that spot. But he's got to get his head in the game and keep it in the game. And and then maybe we'll get a chance to really see what his potential could be. All right, let's go back. Cyrus Jones, uh, he only had 18 punt returns this year. So for some reason, the NFL limits it to 20 punt returns. It's 1.25 punt returns per game to qualify, which means there's only a handful of qualifying punt returners in the entire league, like 17 out of 32 teams. But he he led the league in uh, yards per turn at 14.4 for people who had uh, 16 or more, one per game or more. And uh, he he doesn't return kickoffs, which is a – you know, it's something that it would be nice if he could do that. He doesn't really play defense. So he did play three snaps this last year in an emergency role. Uh, it, it's 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 kind of a weird situation, but he's a guy who really doesn't. I would say he probably will never elevate himself from the developmental category into a young producer because his role, the scope of his role, is just not large enough as a punt returner only. And even if he took, became a kickoff returner, I still don't think it's probably large enough. No, he's got that really niche role. Uh, and 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 obviously has shown some talent as a punt returner. Clearly returned one for a TD and uh, has had some other pretty nice looking returns as well. Um, what really concerned me, I, and I tweeted this, so I mean, I'll, I'll I'll you know I'll take I'll take my medicine on this. Is I was really concerned about his fumbling because when mm-hmm. he was in New England, he didn't have a ton of returns, but he had just relative to the number of returns, yeah, he had a lot of fumbles. Right. A lot of them. And so I was really concerned about that, but didn't see much of that. Uh, if any, I don't, I don't even recall. I mean, maybe, maybe he had a bobble that he might've recovered. He obviously had the play that Ross Burke said, we will never speak of again, uh, which, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which wasn't really a fumble, was but a it, was fumble. Just, <laughs> it was just so bad. Like we're just, we're just not going to talk about that. Right. The decision of how he played that ball or misplayed that ball. Like we're not, we're not going to talk about that. You, um, you get a mulligan in, under some circumstances and he played very well to that point. So, you know, it was what yeah. it was. Yep, it is what it is. So, yeah, you're right. He's He's got that that really narrow role, and so we'll just have to see. I mean, it's going to be interesting. They've obviously got a crowded secondary, so we'll, we'll have to see how that shakes out with him. Okay. Zach Sealer, 14 defensive snaps in 2018. Um, I think really the key for him is going to be whether or not Brent Urban comes back. So Brent Urban, I think probably it will be a matter of money for the Ravens. What's the, what's the appropriate price? And the Ravens may put a higher value on him than other teams because a lot of what he provides is some outstanding run defense. I think he could be a better pass rusher than he was this last year. But, uh, you know, so far, just honestly, he's not really shown it. He, what he is is a terrific run defender. And the Ravens have really been leaning on him to play a high percentage of snaps. And for a guy who's, you know, been hurt a lot of his career, so far, I mean, the Ravens, whenever he's been healthy, they've depended on him to play a very high percentage of the team's snaps. So uh, he, I, I hope they bring Urban back. But if they don't, Zach Sealer is a very interesting prospect because it's very unusual for a rookie to be the strongest man on the team. And that was what was reported last year in camp was that he was the strongest individual player. He was a man among boys during the preseason in terms of being able to push those grocery baggers around in the second half. So much so that in the Colts game, they got him in early and they got him snaps against Quentin Nelson directly on the inside, which I thought was very telling in terms of what they what they thought they were going to do with him this year. So anyway, I was glad to see they, they didn't try and slip him through on the practice squad. I'm, I'm fairly sure he would have been claimed. But the fact that he went the entire year, uh, you know, without really getting an opportunity to play would tell you that that a the, the Ravens defensive line was very healthy. But but b also, he never really forced his way onto the uh, into any playing time. 
Yeah, he's a guy who could have some really interesting potential next season. I mean, I didn't, I honestly did not know a lot about him uh, coming into this year, but having a chance again to watch him some at practice in the offseason and, and in those preseason games, he's that prototypical sort of five technique, uh, but mm-hmm. who can also kick down inside. And you could see it, like you said, in the games. Yeah, there's obviously some rawness there with understanding and recognizing schemes, but he's a powerful dude. I mean, you yeah. can you can see it when he when he hit guys, you can see him jar guys backwards. I mean, he's got some real pop in his hands, and so I think you know that's that's a good place to start with. If you got some power at that position, that's a good starting spot. Yeah, I, I you know I would have said for a lot of quickness for a big man too. I mean, obviously, if he if he truly had elite quickness, he probably would have been in a Power Five conference. But it looked to me like much more quickness than what I would have expected, given what his pedigree was and given where he came from. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. You're right. There was definitely some some sort of first step action there that you mm-hmm. didn't expect. I didn't expect. I was like, wait a minute. I thought he was just a big, big, strong, slow dude. But he's he's not that. Uh, he's got a little first step quickness to him, too. All right. Chris, Chris Wormley uh, was one of four active defensive linemen for a lot of the season. And I, I constantly pointed out the risk the Ravens were taking down the stretch by not having Patrick Ricard active, not having an emergency player there. But the Ravens really managed that risk fairly well until uh, Pierce was hurt against the Chargers in the playoff game. And then they had, then they had some, uh, some problems with, with playing the same players over and over. And of course, when you're behind in a game is when the opposing team's going to run. And that's when you really need to have Pierce and you need to have all your linemen healthy because you're not going to have Zadarius Smith as much on the inside. And it did hurt the Ravens in that game against San Diego with a couple of long drives uh, crossing over from the from the fourth quarter and from the third to fourth quarter when they scored their touchdown and then had a field goal drive over. Anyway, Wormley was used a little bit as a pass rusher this year. They actually experimented a lot with the pairings with Zedarius on the inside. Uh, Pierce did well at it, but they didn't just stay with Pierce. They still tried Wormley. They still tried Urban. They, Williams had some snaps in that position as well. So it's been a variety of people. And Wormley ended up shaking out as the fewest snaps uh, in the second half of the defensive linemen who were active each week. Uh, I, I think there's still potential there, you know, going into his third year. Uh, I don't know really, you know, he's a player I really don't know whether up from here, down from here is where he's likely to go. Yeah, I, I agree with you on the potential. I actually really like. Chris Wormley, uh, Chris Wormley, and I, I kind of look at him as kind of my dark horse candidate to maybe also join that interior pass rushing group. Now, depends on what happens with Urban because his opportunity will be affected, but um, I think he showed some really good stuff from a technique standpoint this year and in terms of getting stronger because that was one of Harbaugh's knocks on him his rookie year. He just wasn't strong enough in his lower right. body in particular to sort of hold up in there, but I think he quietly kind of generated more pressure uh, not just against the pass, but also did a good job sort of getting off blocks and playing the run than what people may realize. I think one of the things that happened to Chris a lot was he'd have a good move, get in good position, but then not finish the play, you know, not sack the quarterback, not tackle the running back. And yeah. so that's, that's uh, you know, that's not what you want. It's not enough to like sort of get in position. You got to finish and make the play. Uh, but if that's sort of the first step, and then maybe I'm hoping next year is the second step of making those same moves, but then finishing the play, uh, he's a guy that I'm sort of quietly excited about uh, to, to to see him take that next step. All right. So now we're down to Kenny Young here as the last player on the list for the developmental. So a rookie year, um, I'd have to call it a qualified success. 
Obviously, he's playing in a three-man platoon that is extraordinarily protective, uh, productive. And we've talked about this a little bit. It's three platoon players. They all have weaknesses. They all have strengths. They are extremely well-fitted to the snaps that they play. So Kenny Younger, Kenny Young, a, a basically downhill gap shooting run defender, also has some of that speed to close on the short passes and can help with that. Uh, really, he's got no idea still what's going on behind him on the play in terms of of diagnosing what route combinations may be happening behind him. That's something Mosley never really gets a lot of credit for, but he's pretty good at it. Um, Owasu had a terrific year from a pass rush standpoint and was used more and more in that role, including some third and mediums, which were the exclusive province of Levine and the Dime for most of the year. So Levine had a terrific year in terms of of pass defense uh, in the Dime. He's not the guy you'd want in against the run, but there were really no teams that were able to make the Ravens pay for their platoon will linebacker role by playing a lot of no huddle effectively. Yeah, Kenny Young, uh, I was excited uh, about the season he had. And I totally agree with you on sort of the coverage issue, right? Uh, particularly when he's in zone. Uh, but, but sort of understandable uh, being a rookie. And then if you go back and kind of really take a look at what they asked him to do at UCLA, I don't really think he had a whole lot of opportunity to do that. So um, while I'm not excusing it, uh, I, I, I sort of understand it. But one of the things I, I looked at that was really kind of interesting was I looked at him, he was almost like a real sort of stat sheet stuffer. And I know, you know, you can use numbers to kind of tell whatever story you want to tell, but there was only six other rookie linebackers that had uh, more in terms of a combination of of stats. So he had 40 solo tackles, uh, four tackles for loss, two and a half sacks, seven QB hits, one pass defense, one forced fumble, one fumble recovery. Like he did a little bit of everything. Uh, in, in the role that he got. Uh, and so that that was actually really interesting to me to go back and look and compare him to those other guys. Because you're talking about guys who got a lot of top building, like Darius Leonard and some of these other guys. Sure. Uh, and so to to see him sort of be in that that sort of category with, you know, playing a much, much, uh, you know, more limited role, uh, it was really kind of eye-opening for me. I mean, I knew watching the games that he played pretty well with what they asked him to do, but I didn't know that he sort of, uh, ticked off as many different areas uh, in terms of contribution as as the numbers kind of showed. Well, the Ravens really have hit on something, I'm pretty sure, with, with regard to the platooning, because none, no one of these three players played as many as 42% of the snaps. In fact, Owasu led the group with 41.3% of the snaps played. And Levine played about 29, similar percentage, a little lower for Kenny Young. And when you look at those three players and their total production, which is 112 tackles, nine sacks, 13 tackles for loss, 20 quarterback hits, two interceptions, 12 passes defensed, and three forced fumbles, there aren't any stand-up linebackers in the game, period. It, Mike, Will, whatever you want to call them, who have in, individual numbers that are like that, even if they play full-time. So the Ravens not only have done it very cheap, they've also... Uh, found a combination that, frankly, doesn't give them anywhere near the injury risk of losing your single $4 unicorn who you have playing that position. So if you have Luke Keekley and you lose him, it's, oh, my God, Luke Keekley's missing. What the hell do we do? If you lose one of these guys, it's bad. But you, you, since they're already all three specialists, you, you can probably come closer to replacing any one of the three than you can replacing Keekley, obviously, who you can't replace. <laughs> so yeah. I like this formula better. 
Yeah, I, I, he's probably not the only guy that, that, that has done this, or probably not even the first guy, but he gets a lot of credit for it. It's the Belichick approach, right, where you find a group of guys with different skill sets. So you look at a position and you say, well, I need this position to do you know, four or five different skill sets. And like you said, it's very hard to find that one unicorn guy who can do all five. It's like baseball, right? It's a five-tool player. It's Absolutely. hard to find that one guy. But maybe I can find four guys, and each one of those guys has a tool <laughs> and a different tool, and we can platoon them so we get to that four or five-tool guy. Now, Michael, I, I don't remember. Did you grow up in Baltimore? Uh, no, I actually grew up in Florida. Florida. Okay, so I'm older, obviously, <laughs> in terms of uh, of uh, Baltimore. We, we grew up with Earl Weaver, and platooning here was a big part of Orioles baseball in the 70s and in the end of the 80s. And the platoon, in, in, in particular, in the magical 1979 season of Lowenstein and Renicky is what I think of when I think about these three players and what they've uh, what they provided. Just I've never... I cannot recall any platoon in football that I've ever seen that's as balanced and as distinctly outstanding as these three guys were, despite the fact that all of them individually are flawed players. Each of them has something they don't do well, and yet they're fantastic in their in their combined uh, play. So anyway. Absolutely. All right, let's move on here, guys, because we're, we're, we're taking kind of a lot of time here. We want to speed this up and get to the mailbag here. So we got veterans playing for market value. I want to go through these really quickly. Brandon Carr, Tony Jefferson, Anthony Levine, C.J. Mosley, Zadarius Smith, Terrell Suggs, Brent Urban, and Brandon Williams. In that group, we've got four guys that are unrestricted free agents this year. That's Mosley, Smith, Suggs, and Urban. I guess I would ask you this. Who do you think among those four is likely to be back, first of all? And then we'll talk about the guys who might get cut anyway, even if they're even if they I actually, are out of contract. I actually think Mosley is probably the most likely to be to well, I, I I thought about this and I had to break it down. Like so with my head, who do I think is the most likely to be back? And with my heart, who do I want back the most? Okay. And so obviously from from the heart standpoint, I want Suggs and Mosley back. Um, but I think with my head, I think Mosley's maybe the most likely to be back. I certainly don't want Suggs to go. I think he is a Raven and should retire a Raven. And, and I think within you know reasonable financial constraints, you do whatever you got to do to make sure he retires a Raven. Um, but Mosley, I... I know we want to go quick, so I won't I won't drag this out, but go back to 2014 when he came into the league, right? And look at any other inside linebacker and look at all of the primary stats that are important to inside linebacker. Only guy who beats him is, is Keekly. Mm-hmm. Nobody else. There's that that's it. That's the list. It's Keekly. So a lot of people give him a, a you know, his coverage and I get it. I get it. But if you if you're gonna use that as a measurement, if you're gonna use numbers, and I'm not saying numbers is, is the only or the best measurement, but if that's what you're gonna use there's nobody better than him other than Keekley since 2014. Right. I think you could look at his coverage skills and really section off some time when he was really hurt. Uh, there, there are other scheme problems also yep. with the way they play that expose him more, starting with the fact that their secondary is extremely talented. When you have that happen, your linebackers are going to get picked on more than for other teams. So you start with that. But but more than that, I mean, he really does understand what's going on behind him. And in the most important play of the entire season, a play we'd probably still be considering as iconic if the Ravens had just beaten the Patriots, you know, yesterday. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. uh, Absolutely. We, it was he knew exactly what was going on behind him. He knew exactly what to expect. And he dropped right into that coverage lane and made the play. And, uh, you know, I just I, I feel like. 
I'm not going to beat him up over what happened earlier in the season when I think he was probably playing a little hurt, and I'm sure as hell not going to beat him up over not being able to keep up with Tyreek Hill on the fourth and nine play when if that's your strategy, you may as well forget it. That's that's a that's a failed <laughs> that's, a, that's a failed uh, thing. I think they Absolutely. learned from that. I think Romo has, has mentioned several times that uh, that that didn't work out. Well, let's let's go on with with. One other point I want to make about the three guys here who are all in this veteran category, but C.J. Mosley, Tony Jefferson, and Eric Weddle are the three guys who are most likely to be calling the signals for the Ravens next year. So I think that that you'd probably say it's it's 90% it will be C.J. Mosley if he's back. But uh, you know the only reason the only reason you might not do it and be only maybe for some of the games would be if Weddle is back also and you decide you want to you want to run it that way. Uh, but if if Mosley is gone, boy, it's really up in the air again. And I think that the fate of those three players may well be tied just by the fact that the Ravens don't want to be without a signal caller or take a risk on Deshaun Elliott taking over signal calling or. Is it Kenny Young who could be the the signal caller and take over the micro linebacker role, or a rookie that they that they draft, or a veteran? You know, maybe there's a Daryl Smith out there again that they can bring in and and do it. But anyway, I I don't think it's not like they'll be, you know, they'll be a, a up up a creek without a paddle, so to speak. Yeah. But they but they're probably ideally would like to go with one of those three guys as the signal caller next year. Yeah, it's a big deal. It's it's maybe a bigger deal than people think about uh, sometimes because particularly when you consider it in light of the freedom that Wink gave those guys to, it's one thing to get the call in, right? Okay, maybe we can get most of the other guys who are out there like Jefferson or some of the other guys you mentioned to relay the call. But then it's also taking that base call and making checks, right? Based on what you see. You've got to move from here. You've got to adjust. You've got to do this. I'm going to do that. That's not easy, right? That that comes with experience. Not only experience, playing experience in that particular defense, right? So you got to kind of have knowledge of both. You got to know the defense well enough to communicate the adjustments and the checks, and just overall experience in the league. How many things have you seen? Yeah. You know, really understand what you're seeing. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the nice things about having Weddle around was he really understood how to manipulate that opposing quarterback with some of that. And, and I, I part of me says that, boy, it'd be nice to have Jefferson in that role because it would kind of dictate his relative position to the line of scrimmage a little more and force a little bit more back end play out of Weddle or, or Elliott or whoever the next free safety is if they draft another one. Uh, but anyway, the, uh, part of me says that would be good. Another part of me says, well, I'm then hoping that circumstances conspire for the proper thing to occur. And if, if Tony Jefferson really is not a back-end guy, well, then they need to figure out how to design the difference a little defense a little differently to have him be in more man coverage tight end situations, be more of the second fill guy on run plays, which, by the way, I think he did very well this year. It's basically a lot of what we saw from Kenny Young and his ability to shoot gaps willy-nilly. Because, I mean, that he's... He's a pure gambler in terms of racking up the the tackle stats that that you saw earlier this year. A lot of that was was allowed by the fact that Jefferson is a great field guy to be the 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 guy who takes Kenny Young's position in level two when he gambles. Yeah, Jefferson. Obviously, he gets a little bit of a bad rap for some people, but again, just quickly going back doing the numbers thing. Uh, if you look at solo tackles, pass defense, interceptions, sacks. Four guys better than him, and two of those guys are all pros, Jamal Adams and Harrison Smith at the strong safety position. So, yeah, there's definitely some things to talk about in terms of back-end coverage. That's legitimate. 
but I think he played better this year than people sometimes give him credit for. I, I, I agree with that. I thought he played better last year, frankly, than a lot of people gave him credit for. But a lot of that was was due to the fact that I think the second half, Pease figured it out in terms of really wanting to make him more of a dedicated front-end guy and, yeah. and set it back. Anyway, let, let's, let's move on. The next category includes two guys that we really need to spend a little bit of time on, the veteran cap value concerns. Jimmy Smith and Eric Weddle are the only two guys in this category. And it's interesting because... We've had some cap value concerns for players who are not playing well, um, but these are two guys who are playing pretty well and are concerns largely because they're in the last year of their contract and have just enormous cap numbers, and, and uh, that doesn't really matter, not the cap number. It's the available dollars if you cut them. And Jimmy Smith's around, what, 7 or $9 million and, and Eric Weddle is... Seven and a half, I think. Seven and a half. So anyway... Big numbers for both of them that that are going to make it very alluring to to cut either of those players, especially considering the depth at cornerback. So why don't you give me your ideas on on who you think will be back and and why they ought to go one way or another? It, this was a tough one for me. Uh, and again, I had to separate the head from the heart. I think if I go with the head, I probably don't bring either one of them back. Um, if I go with the heart, I'll probably bring back Jimmy, and I may not bring back Weddle. Because it's that philosophical question of, do we bring, do we keep the band together? Do we bring the band back for one more year, right? Because when you look at how well this defense played together, one of the most important things uh, to, to a defense is cohesion, right? And you develop that cohesion by how long those 11 guys and the rotational guys play together. The longer they play together, the more consistent the communication becomes, the more consistent their identification of what they're seeing and the adjustment all of that stuff gets better and more consistent the more those guys play together. But that cohesion and consistency also has a price. And so that's always the, the real question for me is, so what's your price for that? And right. I just don't know with the young depth that they have, particularly at, uh, well, really at both positions. I was going to say corner, but really at both positions, at safety too. I just don't know if the price for that cohesion is worth it. Right. Well, I, I'll, I'll go a couple points here I want to make. Number one is that the safety position is really getting kind of old. Now, they're, they're, the, Jefferson is a reasonably young player, but he's still a second contract player two years in. Uh, Weddle's obviously an old man uh, at 33, 34, whatever he'll be next year. And then they have Levine, who's still very productive, but is in his 30s. So, you know, it's a, it's an older position. Chuck Clark is a younger guy, but we're not sure who he is. Deshaun Elliott, a younger guy, unfortunately, lost a huge developmental year. I'd love to know who he was, but we don't. Um, and then they, then they, you know, they have the possibility of a of another draft pick, which I think, frankly, would make a lot of sense right now at safety, even if they have to carry five, because they are seem to be committed to the dime defense, and they could get committed to the quarter if they wanted to do it that way as well and play four safeties on on a few more plays. So I think there's the room for the extra player. But here's the thing. Jimmy Smith, $9.5 million base salary this year. And it does not matter that his cap charge is $16.175 million. It's the $9.5 million is the, is the amount they can get out of. Yeah. If you keep Jimmy Smith together for, for $9.5 million, if you bring the band back together, as you would say, that's $9.5 million you don't have to spend for all time. And you can spend it this year, next year, whenever, on, on players, period. And, and that's a that's a big financial commitment when it seems to be somewhat opposite the organizational decision of eighty twenty, you know, the eighty twenty yep. rule. And yep. and I just I I love Jimmy Smith and, and I love the way he played down the stretch and how effective he was. His uh, 
you know, the the one the, the game against Cleveland was fantastic. He allowed only one one catch on seven uh, targets in that game, and it was a one yard touchdown on that rub route. But otherwise, he was all he was the only guy who was staying with his man the whole game against uh, uh, against Baker Mayfield. So I just I would. I think he would. He provides you with some of that island value that might be worth that. I think yeah. there's another team that may want Jimmy Smith. I think they're actually Absolutely. the Ravens don't just get the cap value there. Oh, they'll certainly want him if they if they if the Ravens caught him at some price. But my question is whether he has trade value. Mm-hmm. So so he isn't. It's nine and a half million for one year. That's not that much if you really are ready to contend right now and are short a superstar cornerback. I mean, he's yeah. he's your guy then. Um, and you, you can't get him as cheap or get into a contract that doesn't end up costing you more money down the road uh, with him or with somebody else. So I think there's a good chance the Ravens will really de- defer any release of him until very late. Same thing is true of Flacco, of course. Yep. Uh, they're just not incented to get rid of either of these guys early. And I don't believe either of them has a bonus that's payable at the beginning of the league year. Brandon Carr does. So Brandon Carr, they kind of have to make a decision early. But Jimmy Smith, I don't believe he has one of those. And that means that uh, you know they're in a better position to play the waiting game and see if they can uh, see if they can trade him before they decide they have to cut him late. That's a good point about the trade value for Jimmy because you're right that opportunity doesn't come along often, right? No. To get one of the better corner. I, I, well, okay, maybe that's too strong. A top cornerback, a quality cornerback in the league uh, for the relative value of what you would take on with his contract. Um, that doesn't come around often, right? That's that's almost yeah. like the real Revis back in the day going to the Jets. Uh, you know, the, those things don't. And not, I'm not comparing him to Revis; he's not that guy. But I mean, just mm-hmm. in terms of a, a quality corner becoming available for a trade, uh, just doesn't happen a lot. So that yeah. that's a good point. I really had only thought about them releasing him. I really hadn't thought that much about trades. So that's that's a really good point. Well, it, the the value won't be there. It'll be it'll be something similar to an Anquan Bolden. So it'll be a salvage value number. So uh, you know, my guess is. Maybe a fifth-round pick might be the right level that they could reasonably get if they're going to cut him anyway. It's kind of that salvage. It's not a two or anything. I mean, he's a great player, but the problem is that his contract is so high that he that that that's what. It is. One other point I wanted to go back to. We're go, we've gone through some cap value concerns, but I want to go back to this one. They they have to put RFA t- uh, tenders on a couple of players coming up, and Michael Pierce is one, and Owasso is another that are interesting ones in terms of of where they where they do it. So anyway, the point I want to make about this is they could put a second round tender on Pierce, and I believe they will, and that'll mean he'll make three and a half million, three point eight million, whatever it is this year, and other teams will have the opportunity to negotiate with him. That actually could work out in the Ravens' favor. Okay, now I know a lot of people are thinking, "Oh my God, we could lose him for a second round pick," and it's I, I'm not saying that wouldn't be not what the Ravens would want because it really might not be a good deal for to lose Michael Pierce. For that thing, but look at it from the other team's perspective. They have to come into that contract negotiation and say, "Okay, we're going to sign him for some amount, and let's say it's four years, thirty million for Pearson, the uh, eight million guaranteed, or something like that." And I don't really know exactly where he would fit in. Someone like uh, Brian McFarland would be better at estimating that. And we do want to make make the point that we use Brian McFarland's information a lot as we go through this. So thanks, Brian. You write great stuff at Ravens Salary Cap on Twitter. But the the, the point I want to make is that. They have to look at that second round pick, the other team, as a divisible benefit uh, that they have to figure out how much do I have to reduce his contract in order to make it worth it to also have to give up the second round pick. And this is why the players hate 
the, the entire tagging system, the entire uh, RFA system, um, because they know that they'll end up getting a lesser contract because of it. So if he goes out and he signs an offer sheet, the Ravens, they may be unhappy and, and they may have to give him up if the, if the contract is particularly hefty uh, for a second round draft pick, or they may end up with eight teams signing him to a four-year, $30 million offer sheet with $8 million guaranteed. And their answer is, yeah, we'll yeah. sign him to that. <laughs> We're yeah. happy with that deal. But Ozzie had a good, long relationship allowing players to go to the market as free agents often, and, all, and also as RFAs, to try and establish their market value. And, and this is another opportunity to do so. And I, I hope it gives them a chance to make Pierce a Baltimore icon for life and there is a cost to that. So, I, you know, I understand Michael Pierce's uh, position on this, that it might mean he makes $8 million less lifetime, but it also might mean his name is up on the Ring of Honor because of it. And he's a hell of a player. I mean, it's, he's that type of player who will play out his second contract here. Yep. And I think the thing that helps them in addition to that, because that's, that's another good point, something I didn't think about, sort of that weird sort of leverage position uh, kind of puts the Ravens in a sort of backhanded kind of leverage position with what that team has to do with that other contract. You got to find that sweet spot, right? You don't want to overpay, but at the same time, if you lowball it, you lose out. Uh, but hopefully, you know, the perception that's out there, and I, this may be a bigger perception among fans and people actually in the league, people in the league probably really appreciate the value of what he does in that position. But the perception amongst, you know, fans like me and other people is that, well, what do you need a nose tackle for? What you, you know, what you give him a second round pick for a nose tackle for? Come on. You know, you can get those guys anywhere. Look at him. He was undrafted. You can find that guy anywhere. Um, so maybe that helps a little bit. Uh, but I don't know. I think if coaches, obviously, are watching the tape, and uh, he's a pretty impressive dude. So I'm hoping, like you, uh, that he's here. And I know I've heard a lot of people say they should have gave him the contract they gave to Brandon Williams. Right. I've actually heard that a lot. Um, but, you know, hey, it, it's water on the bridge. It is what it is. Uh, but I, yeah, I, I hope he's here because, uh, I really like what he brings. Okay. I, I honestly, I like what Brandon Williams has done also. I thought he did a little bit more as a pass rusher this year. Definitely was still a, a quality run stopper. And boy, when you have the two of those guys in there, which is not very often, but when you do have the two of those guys in there, they, they are an immovable couple of objects. Yeah. Uh, I, I have him still in the playing for market value. He'll be definitely here next year, so it doesn't doesn't make sense to have a cap value concern because there's no concern to have when you have to pay more to release the guy than 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 to keep him. Absolutely. So, so if the the concern could come next year where Brandon Williams you know regresses a step, if that would happen, then I think it's possible that they would cut him after 2019. But uh, but he's certainly in no danger. Uh, for this coming year. We'll go quickly to the transitional category. Only four guys, and I think you'll agree there's a lot of talent here. Bam Bradley, Jalen Hill, Stanley John Baptiste, and Patrick Ricard, who obviously is a very special case in this group. But uh, but Bam Bradley obviously has, has missed basically two complete seasons since playing two defensive snaps in his rookie year. Uh, Jalen Hill played, I believe it was eight snaps against, might have been the Vikings at midseason in 2017. He played one year before Maurice Kennedy came back. And then Stanley Jean-Baptiste hasn't been able to get on the field either, but he looked pretty good in, in the preseason this year, was one of the real Ravens stars, and I thought would be you know, part of the great cornerback depth they would have when they were missing some guys early in the season. And then he ended up with a broken arm and, and lost the season. And the fourth guy I'll mention is Ricard, because he's, he's just not quite there in a couple of categories. First of all, we've gone away from the fullback here in Baltimore. So you don't really play a fullback very much anymore. And and with Lamar Jackson, 
Um, maybe you make him into that same guy who is a tight end as well and can flex and do the various things. But he's not really a reasonable flex out threat. He might be the take over the Max Williams role where he's the motion guy and then hammer somebody in the middle of that line, which would be kind of interesting to see. But then you lose that threat as a receiver, obviously, by doing that. Right. Um, what Ricard does give you is that extra great point of attack player. But if they're not going to use him as a fullback, his I don't think his defensive line skills are special enough that he's the guy you keep. The, the reason that, that it's kind of nice to have him is that he's a bigger body, and the bigger body's the one you really can't afford to be without. You can afford to maybe have Zedarius Smith slip in and replace your five-tech, but if you have your your one or three-tech out for a, for a period of a game and you have to get through that game, very hard to without a big guy. So uh, I'm, you know, obviously what, what all the other things that happen in Twitter, I don't really want to talk about it, but uh, it's, it's something that I... I I don't know how much baggage he's still carrying around that clubhouse or in the rest of the league for it. Um, you know, I'm really not privy to the inside discussions. I will say Michael Pierce, I want that guy leading men on my team going forward with the way he came out and talked about it after the fact. I don't know about, I don't know about Ricard, but I know Michael Pierce's reaction was something really special. Yeah, I mean, it's it's unfortunate, um, you know, the way that that happened. And like you said, you know, it's those, the, I'm sort of on the same page with you with that kind of stuff. I try not to get into it because I just don't know. You know, there's just so many things that we just don't know. And so to speculate on it kind of like recklessly, you know, I, I kind of tend to stay away from doing that, too. But, yeah, it was it was interesting because I, I really liked sort of that that sort of dual threat value that he provided, um, you know, before they sort of transitioned their run game with Lamar. Um and 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 really saw a role for him uh, in that fullback position. And it's it, but what's what's interesting about it is with Greg Roman now taking over as OC. If you go back and study some of his offenses going back to the 49ers and going back to the Bills, he liked to play with two backs. He liked to play with a fullback. Um, they had a guy back in San Francisco, uh, Bruce. I can't remember his last name, but he was he was a defensive guy. He was a defensive tackle who they or defensive end, an undersized defensive tackle, defensive end. Bruce mm-hmm. Miller. There we go. Who they okay. converted? Who they converted to fullback? Uh, so he's got a little bit of a track. Uh, Greg Roman has a little bit of a track record with those kinds of guys. So there may still be yet uh, a role for Patrick Ricard there. Maybe, maybe I understand what you're saying. He's certainly not the same pass catching threat uh, as some of the tight ends who line up back there are, but. Uh, and Miller was a little bit better, I think, as a, as a pass mm-hmm. catcher than, than Ricard. So, so maybe not. But it would be interesting to see what Roman taking over, sort of how maybe some of their approaches in terms of the kind of player they're looking for, the profiles that they're looking for, maybe slightly changes uh, with him taking over. And the other guys that you mentioned, all talented guys, like you said, um, haven't seen them on the field a ton, for prim- you know, primarily Bradley and Hill. Uh, Gene Baptiste looked like he was he was oh, and did right. He actually did make this roster right. Oh yeah, uh, coming out of camp last year, so it looked like there was going to maybe be a spot for him too. So um, it's going to be you know one of those competition deals for those guys, right? They're going to have to get in the camp. They're going to have to battle it out uh, to see if they can carve out a spot on the team. Yeah, but the, you know, in the case of Hill and Baptiste, Hill's now coming into his third year and Baptiste into his fourth. Baptiste critical point about fourth year players in the NFL is they really automatically start camp on the bubble if they don't already, if they're not already stars because they have to really outplay a rookie by a lot to maintain their position because all that additional option value you get from a rookie or a second year player for that matter uh, is so much more, is so much more value. And it's all about beating the cap. So, you know, my guess is if, if he can recover 
He's probably the guy that somebody picks up off the street or somebody wants as their fifth cornerback on the roster. I just don't know that it can be the Ravens, given the depth they have at the position, even if they make a cut or two uh, you know, to get closer. We'll see, because cuts are often coupled with injuries, and then all of a sudden right. you've got an oh-my-God situation. So whatever. Going back to Ricard for a minute, the, the sad thing, or one of the sad things about this, obviously there's a lot of sad things about his situation, but he's an exclusive, right free agent, exclusive rights free agent, which means he has to play for the league minimum this next year is really would suck for the Ravens to lose a, you know, a reasonable quality player uh, who can play for the league minimum. It's just that that really is just makes it all that much worse for Ravens fans. Obviously if it's the appropriate thing, it's the appropriate thing, but it's yeah. uh it's a sad, uh, a sad situation. And um, I, I hope the, you know, the, the, I hope that he can come to camp again and things can be like a fresh start. But I don't really believe that's going to happen for Antonio Brown in Pittsburgh. And unfortunately, I'm not sure it's going to happen for Patrick Ricard either here. No, look, you know, it doesn't it doesn't look that way. It looks it looks, you know, pretty dicey on there. But just setting that aside again, like I said, because I, I tend like you to kind of stay away from that. Um, I think some of what may happen with him and I know you'll talk about this when you get to the offensive guys is is what happens with Nick Boyle and Max Williams. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that, that might, you know, uh, sort of be like a, uh, sort of have an impact on what happens with, with Ricard in some ways, just, just, you know, strictly in terms of on field, like I said, yeah. if, if, if the, if the off field decision has been made or they feel like it has to be made, then they'll, they'll do what they have to do right. just in terms of on field that could factor into sort of what happens with him too. Right. Well, the, the some other team probably needs him more, so he should have some trade value. Of course, the baggage itself has reduced his trade value, so we don't really know. And yeah. uh, anyway, I, Michael, I've really appreciated doing this. There's been a lot of fun. Josh, what do you got for us in the mailbag in terms of stuff? I saw a lot of questions out there on Twitter. Yeah, so we've got a good amount of questions, and I'm going to try to save some of them for the offensive episode since this one went so long. First one up is from Garnett West. I hope it's not too late to publish a question. It's not. He got it in. Do you gentlemen believe that we should let Suggs walk in order to pay Smith? Do you see them tied together? I do not see them tied together. I'll, I guess I'll start on this one. I, I think they're they're both fairly independent. The The thing that makes them dependent is the fact that, you know, that it's dollars expended in either way. Um, I think a lot of whether Suggs plays for the Ravens or not is a little bit up to Suggs in terms of whether or not there's a hometown discount involved, how much he puts a value on finishing his career with the Ravens. I think the Ravens do want him at some price. I just don't think they, they can afford to pay top money, and there may be a team out there who wants Suggs for a leadership role that it would be willing to pay a little bit more. I'm with you. I'm I'm right there with you. I lean more towards Suggs, and for all the reasons that you mentioned, and that's why I want him here is because I think not only the leadership, but also just what he asked to your defense, the guy has seen everything on defense, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can't fool him. You can't trick him. He's seen it all. So he's a little bit like Mosley in that way is like, maybe it doesn't show up in the numbers and it looks like he's taking a step back, but he might not be making the tackle or the sack, but he's making the play because he's setting it up for somebody else to make the play. Mm-hmm. All right. The, the tough part about uh, mailbag questions on a day where you've, talked about every member of the defense is we're going to have some repeat but i want to still get through them uh george is wondering about weddell how much ice cream will weddell eat in baltimore next year all right i'm i'm gonna say the maximum likelihood amount of ice cream that weddell will eat in baltimore next year is zero 
<laughs> but but there's some other amount of ice cream that he's likely to, in terms of servings one after a win I guess is the way it works right but uh, but he, you know <laughs> we don't know how many wins they'll have so I, I think it'll be difficult otherwise to to judge the number of servings so my, my best estimate would be zero they bring him back if they decide to bring him back and let him finish out his contract I'm gonna put him down for mm, let's say nine or ten servings of ice cream because isn't there that dude out there who's gonna buy him an ice cream truck Right? Oh, okay. I, I saw that report. Right. So it should be a lot easier to get the ice cream and the varieties of ice cream when you've got your own truck now at your disposal. Yeah. Well, once you get to 10 wins, you better get to 12 wins so, so your playoff run means something. So anyway, that's uh, 10 wins is a bad place to like kind of get stuck in terms of wins. But anyway. Ice cream count. I'm, I'm only holding it to ice cream count. There you go. <laughs> All right, Jalen wants to know, should we uh, go all in on free agency and go after some key players to improve our team, or do we go all in on the draft, whether it's trading up or accumulating more draft picks? Okay, I got my answer on that. Yeah, um, I, I, don't, I don't know that they've ever gone all, quote-unquote, all in on free agency. I think that's just not their organizational philosophy. I think they're, you know, we've heard it tons of times, right player, right price. Uh, and so I think they'll be selective and they'll, they'll probably bring in some guys who fit sort of their profile uh, that they've shown in terms of free agency. And, but for me, uh, and, I, and I think Ozzy and, and DaCosta kind of, you know, have, have shown that they think this way too. It's about draft and develop. You know, I think they're really big believers in that draft and develop philosophy, uh, philosophy like Ken always says. That's really how you win the cap. Right is by drafting yeah. and developing your own guys. So um, that that's that would be my hope in terms of their approach. But uh, I, I guess we'll see. Uh, what do you think, Ken? Well, they did a very good job last year with trading down and getting valuable players with their reduced value of selections, if that makes sense. So I didn't think they got the the proper value, obviously, for trading out of the Derwin James pick in particular. I thought they pissed away a lot of value in terms of the relative level of picks. But then they made up for it by, by having extraordinary picks for the places where they did select. And yeah, I thought they did very well. So anyway, we're, we're, I, I would hope that they don't lose out on a star talent in the first round again. But again, this may be a year where, again, they trade back, pick up additional second round picks. They, they, one of the real interesting things is going to be see what they get for Ryan Jensen. Because he, right now, one of the services is projecting him as the last pick in the third round will be the compensation for Jensen. So that's right on that bubble where we might get a three, we might get a four, and it's a big difference. So anyway, the, the uh, certainly a possibility anyway that it, that it could be either very nice to see Jensen go and at least play a full season with the big contract uh, in Tampa and, and uh, help out his former teammates a little bit. All right, Connor Brooks asks, do you feel the need to sign CJ back this offseason? I'm not sure if he's the type of linebacker that fits best in today's game with the lack of speed and coverage skills. He's good, but is he worth the price? You want to start? Yeah, I'll go. Um, I, I get where Connor's coming from. Um, I think we've seen this a lot. You look at some of the smaller, faster, lighter linebackers out there, and even some of the guys that the Ravens have on their team when they when they sort of rotate guys into that role like Levine. So I, I get that. You know, yeah, that that CJ probably doesn't necessarily fit that profile. But I think from what I've said earlier, look, I'm obviously biased. I love the dude. I'm not going to hide it. Uh, <laughs> I think that you want to do it at the price that's right for you, which is going to be tough because mm -hmm. you're probably looking at somewhere between 10 to 12 million a year. 
uh, right? At, I think he's going to want top top three inside linebacker money, so that's obviously going to be tough. But you do have the opportunity to create some cap uh, space with Flacco, with Smith, with potentially Weddle, with, I hope, not Suggs, but you have the potential to create some space there if you decide, look, we're going to go ahead and pay close to market value for CJ because that's what it's going to take to keep him. Yeah. I mean, there's a pool of dollars there, and you're hitting it right on the money that, you know, they can't keep them all. They might have to, they might have to let Suggs go, and they probably should go into this negotiation, at least with an understanding of what's the most they can possibly eat here. Um, to understand that properly, I think they really need to figure out what would they do defensively in the absence of CJ. So does this give them an opportunity to, first of all, anoint a different signal caller, which probably means Jefferson would be my guess. And then can they afford to pick up another linebacker with lesser skills and play two platoon linebacker positions on the inside, which, again, could be done. I think they'll actually lose significantly if they try and really spread the butter too thin and move Young and Owasso and have them playing opposite each other and both playing more snaps because, hey, look, the whole platoon played so well last year. I think that would be a big mistake. So I think they're really going to have to either draft another rookie linebacker who looks like they've either got legitimate two-down skills uh, or legitimate three-down skills that, they, that they're that they taking a chance on and then give that guy either a chance to be the signal caller or give him a very defined role where they're playing then a lot of quarter defense where they bring in that seventh defensive back uh, and second other interior safety to play on a lot of the passing down. So they could play it either way, but they got to, they got to understand what are you going to do without Mosley if you lose him? All right. Uh, we're going to close out the mailbag with this question from Hugh. And I like this question. So we're going to use it for both today with the defense and tomorrow with the offense. Uh, so there's still questions to get in time to get in your questions. Make sure you're using that hashtag film study mailbag. So Hugh wants to know who is the biggest surprise this year? All right. On the defensive side, because we're going to use the question as well tomorrow. Yeah, biggest surprise this year on the defensive side. I guess, um, well, I don't know. It depends on, on whether I really thought this guy was a surprise or not. I guess I didn't really see him as a surprise, but uh, it's a guy that I liked, and I think he maybe surprised some other people. For me, would be Zadarius Smith. Um, I think that he kind of showed the potential early on to maybe be a guy who could have some decent sack numbers and uh, could really get after the quarterback. But when I really looked at the numbers this year and compared them sort of league-wide based on sort of some of the things that he did, one of the numbers that really jumped out was the number of quarterback hits he had. He had 25 quarterback hits. And when you looked around the league and combined that with, like I said, some of the other stuff he did in terms of solo tackles, pass defense, ta tackles for loss, there was one other guy in the league that had that number of QB hits and, and you know, some of those other tackles. So I think who he talking really... about Ford or J.J. Watt or who was it? Uh, you know what? I've got it. Uh, no, that's I'll... okay. That's okay. No, I've, I've actually got a note. I'll look back and see if I can find it because I can kind of talk through it a little bit. But, uh, yeah, it was uh... – yeah, you know what? Never mind. You're right. I can't yeah. find it. That's but okay. no, it was it was it was something that really kind of stood out to me because I don't know that I thought he would have that kind of impact. I was expecting an impact, but I don't know that I thought he was going to have that kind of impact. Right. I I would agree with that as as a good choice. I, the other guy I'm going to go with since I want to pick somebody different is Patrick Owasso. Uh, 
did a lot more than I had expected that he could do previously. And I just think he really benefited from playing relatively few snaps in a more tightly defined role that he did extremely well at. And uh, I just I hope he can continue that. I hope it's not one of these things where he figures he has to greatly expand his role just because, hey, I'm in the third and fourth year and I'm trying to make a lot of money in this league. And I'm sure he wants to make a lot of money. He, he's going to make a good living in this league if he can duplicate this season He'll get paid extremely well after 2019. He might even get paid reasonably well if he signs a signs a um, uh, offer sheet with somebody that the Ravens either match or don't. It could be either um, this year. So I mean, he could get three years, 15 million. I don't think that's outrageous. I don't think he's going to get three years, 27 million. So you know, if as long as he's reasonable about his own likelihood of making a lot of money in this league. You know, this is a good opportunity to maximize, and I think in his case, it's not an opportunity to maximize by playing 100% of the snaps. All right. Um, again, getting your questions using the hashtag film study mailbag. Uh, Michael, thanks for joining us and going through all this with Ken. Again, could you spell your Twitter handle for everyone, Abu Kari? Absolutely. It's A B U K A R I. All right, and I'm sure uh, Ken will tweet that out as along with this show. So if you if you missed it and you're still looking, just check on Twitter, look on Ken's feed. You'll find it right there. All and, right, we're trying to still build up our subscription base here, Josh. So tell people how to do that again, especially sure. the 55-year-olds out there who might not know but still have a smartphone. All right. If you got a smartphone, uh, if you've got an iPhone, you go to the podcast app. That you should have on your phone. If you don't have it on your phone, you go to the App Store, which is on your phone. Then you download the podcast app. Then inside of that podcast app, search for Film Study. Uh, that's all you got to type in. And we pop up at the first podcast and just hit the little subscribe. And then you'll get a, a automatic download every time this episode comes out. Yeah. Uh, and then don't brag about doing that at work because everybody else who's younger than you already knows how. I've made that mistake before. You know what? If, if if I just taught you how to how to download a podcast, go brag at work. Maybe you'll find someone else and be able to teach someone else. If you're on Android, very similar process, but I don't know how to do it. I think it is a similar process. You, I, you, go, to the, you, you go to the podcast app, you yeah, search for films. Exactly. The Google Play app, download something called Podcasts, and there's like 10 different podcast apps for Android. They all have film study in them. All right. So. Very good, Josh. Josh, uh, outstanding year producing the show. We still got one more to do here that's kind of at the end of this season. We'll have Michael back uh, here tomorrow night. I'm excited about that. Really fun doing this with you, Michael, and uh, uh, look forward to the next one. No, I appreciate it. Thank you both for having me on. It's uh, it's an honor. I'm not just saying that. I mean, you guys, I've been listening to your show ever since you started it and uh, been a big fan of it. So uh, really humbled to be on and uh, and be a part of these. All right, thanks, Michael.
Introducing the Lowe's List for Innovation. While our aisles are filled with innovative products, we've selected our favorites just for you. Like the exclusive Whirlpool washer with industry-first two-in-one removable agitator. We love this washer because you can customize any load. And with other smart features to streamline your laundry routine, this product is a must-have for families. Shop the full Lowe's list of top picks at Lowe's.com. Lowe's, home to any budget, home to any possibility. U.S. only. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.